0: Well, good morning, Harvest. How are we doing this morning? Good. And you're all here and not in Florida. God bless you. You know, I think the saying goes, the same sun that hardens the clay melts the wax, right? And so we have hearts ready to hear God's word this morning. Amen? Amen. All right. And not that the people in Florida don't. don't. Please don't hear me wrong. I guess that came out wrong, didn't it? Um, Turn with me in your Bibles to John 7. Uh, John 7. We're going to be starting in verse 25 today, and as you're turning there, we have people walking down the aisles with Bibles. If you don't have a Bible today, please take one, and if you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word uh, to be able to get in regularly. Uh, As you're turning there, John 7, verse 25, uh, I would like to tell you a story, and the story is how I met my wife. And... uh, uh, you know my wife. She just was leading worship. And uh, here's a picture of us two days after we first met. And, uh, yeah, what we've What we can learn in this picture is that she doesn't age, and I do. Um, but this happened 15 years ago, and uh, I was interning at Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicagoland, in Elgin specifically. And my intern director was a guy named Matthew Westerholm. We called him Westy. And um, he was instrumental in my wife and I meeting because my internship led to a part time position um, that opened up his opportunity to be able to have another intern. And through a complete random connection, my wife applied and got an internship at the same church in the same department. Uh, under the same guy. And yet our paths never crossed. It was one of those churches that had like seven campuses. And I was at one of them and she was always at a different campus. And our paths never crossed. And we worked in the same worship department. And uh, we also went to the same school. And yet I'd never seen her before. And uh, so Westy one time came up to me and said, hey, Chris, you really need to meet Carolyn Wettendorf. And then he said these words, she's perfect for you. Now, the reason why I would listen to Westy is because prior to my wife and I, and I knew this about him, he had set up three different couples to marriage. And so when someone like that tells you, hey, have you met this girl? She's perfect for you. You probably should listen. And so I did. I decided to pursue this option. And uh, of course, naturally, I pursued it through uh, the best venue that we had available at the time, Facebook. Facebook. And uh, I always joke about this because I tell people that my wife and I met on the internet because it's not untrue, but it's, uh, it happened that way. And I'm going to date myself here because uh, I went on Facebook uh, to check on that, and little did I know he had the same conversation with her, and I already had a friend request waiting from Carolyn. Um, we call her Lenny, and so for the sake of this, because I never call her Carolyn. That's so weird for me to say Carolyn. Lenny, Okay. So I had a friend request waiting from her. And so um, I, we, you know, this is what's gonna date me. I was like, I saw that she had an AOL Instant Messenger name. (laughs) And so I started talking with her on AOL Instant Messenger and we start chatting and I had the boldness to think, wait a minute, we're at the same school. She's on the same campus. And so I asked her, I said, "Do do you wanna meet up for coffee? Thinking like, I mean, that's a little bit of a Hail Mary, but I'm like, hey, might as well go all out if you can. And, and uh, to my surprise, she's like, I'll see you at Joe's in 15 minutes. Joe's is the coffee shop on campus. And so I, we get there and, um, and we start talking and, um, and uh, we joke about that first date. That was on December 11th of 2007. And the reason why we joke about that, if you were to ask my wife about that date, the first thing she would tell you is, he didn't pay for my coffee, But listen, that was intentional. That was very much intentional because I didn't want to freak her out, and I heard about this like playing hard to get thing that apparently worked, and so I didn't want to pay for her coffee. I didn't want to freak her out because, uh, in fact, from that moment on, everything I was going to do, everything I could do was going to be as intentional as it could be because I was trying to win over the heart of the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen. And so fast forward to like four weeks later, we had just got back from Christmas break. We had been talking kind of throughout that break and we get back on campus and we're hanging out a lot more. And at this time, Cal and Mary were really the only two people I hung out with. And so Lenny just kind of was absorbed into our friend group and I had this amazing idea to to make it official. My wife and I, we were gonna make it official and she was my wife at the time. It's so weird for me to say this, okay? Um, But I told Cal and Mary, I said, I want you to meet us on Ohio Street tonight after I take Linny on a date to Big Bowl, which is one of our favorite uh, restaurants. It's still there. We go there every time we go to Chicago. And um, I I said, at this dinner, I'm going to ask her to be official. I'm going to ask her to be my girlfriend. We're going to make this official. And then you're going to meet us randomly after the date to then go to a movie together. And we'll go to the movie for the first time. It will be our first date as official couples. And uh, I'm like, no way could this go wrong. And Uh, So we get to the dinner, and I'm so confident. Even before the food comes, I go to Lenny. I said, hey, you know, I really like what we have here. I I think I would like to make this official. Will you be my girlfriend? And she looks back at me with love in her eyes and says, no. (laughs) And I'm like, do you mean like no as in you're stupid for even thinking about asking that question? Or no as in not yet, I'm not ready? And by God's grace, she said, no, I'm not ready, not yet. Not yet. And thankfully, I uh, I said, okay, well, I'm a good waiter. So when you're ready, will you let me know? And uh, um, and then we had the rest of the dinner very awkwardly. I should have timed that better, shouldn't I have? (laughs) Should have asked that at the end of the dinner. But we had a kind of an awkward dinner. And then we leave the restaurant, and here comes Cal and Mary walking down the sidewalk. And Mary's like, yeah, and I'm like, no, it didn't happen. We went and saw a movie, and uh, anyway, uh, I can tell you, though, at that moment, it was like game on, game on. Everything I was going to be doing from that moment on was going to be intentionally trying to win Lenny's heart. I I, I watched six seasons of Lost to catch up, (laughs) and as a 24 guy, if you know, you know, right? Like, you're either 24 or Lost at that time, and I was both because I was pursuing her heart. I went out and bought a country music CD. One of my biggest regrets in my life. <laughs> <laughs> to win over the heart of Lenny, and uh, by God's grace, two weeks later, January 23rd of 2008, she said, I think I'm ready now, and the rest is history. Here's a recent picture of us this past Thanksgiving. And, oh, I love when you do that. That's <laughs> And so I tell you this story to illustrate the fact that when when you have your mission and you have your mind set on something and your mission set ahead of you, what you do, everything you do, has intentionality for that mission, doesn't it? And Jesus is in his final months of his ministry, and what we're going to see here in this passage is that he has intentionality about everything he is doing. In fact, his intentionality, uh, not only in this passage, uh, but also today, it hasn't changed. And that's our big idea for this morning that I want you to write down. It says, Jesus is intentionally coming after your heart today. Jesus is intentionally coming after your heart. And I want to pick four things out of this passage today as we dive in to God's word uh, about Jesus' intentionality. And if you remember, Pastor Cal last week was talking about how the sequent events was happening during what was called the Feast of Booths. And in that Feast of Booths, uh, Jesus was... Teaching in the temple. He showed up at the temple and he was teaching. And here's the response of the people. Let's pick up in verse 25. It says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Then Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. So Jesus has intentionality in everything and is intentionally coming after your heart today. And here's the first thing I want us to see. Jesus' boldness is intentionally clear. His boldness is intentionally clear. When I think of this story, I just can't help but think that Jesus is such a boss I mean, he's showing up to the temple. He is so bold, almost uncomfortably bold in this story. And what we need to realize, what we need to remember about this circumstance happening now is that the last time Jesus was in the temple, do you know what it was? Is when he overturned the money-changing tables. It's when he ravaged the temple and he cleansed the temple physically, and now he shows up. You think, you think that maybe the temple security guards might have Jesus's picture hung up in their office. You think with the disturbance that that was, that it would be at all surprising that Jesus would show his face up again in the temple, and yet, where was he? Right in the middle of the temple, preaching, teaching like a boss. And what does this say? People were confused, naturally. They're like, wait, isn't, isn't this the guy? Isn't this the guy that they want to kill? Isn't this the guy that they don't want to be speaking right now in the temple? And s- since he is speaking, maybe, and they're not doing anything about it, maybe he, maybe he is the Christ, It even says that many people believed in him because of the sheer fact that they couldn't imagine anyone else doing the signs and the wonders that Jesus did and that they saw with their very eyes. Jesus' boldness is a defining factor of his life, isn't it? He, like no one else in Scripture, steps into situations with such boldness and confidence, and his boldness changed people's entire course of their life. It says many people believed Jesus' example of boldness here is one of the reasons why our church is built on the four pillars that we're built on. And one of them, which is sharing the good news of Jesus with what? Boldness. It's bold witness. And sometimes I need this reminder, don't I? And maybe you need this reminder sometimes of that he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. And yet we become so afraid and timid in the world, don't we? We don't need to be. We have confidence in Christ. We have the same boldness that Christ has in us to be able to preach the good news that people so desperately need. And here's what we need to never forget about boldness. When we are bold with the word of God, rightly handling the word of truth, like First Timothy says, uh, we have the ability, being used by God as instruments in the Redeemer's hands, to possibly and hopefully change the entire course of life in someone's life, the direction of someone's life. It's such a privilege why do you think that we do what we do here during this time of the service? Why do you think we preach? Why do we think we have the word uh, or the, the pillar that we're going to preach the word without apology? If what I'm saying to you at all in this message causes some uh, uncomfortability in your heart or conviction based on what God's word is telling you, it, it, I'm not going to come to you and say, hey, you know, I'm sorry about that. I'm going to say, you're welcome, you know, it was 17 years ago this month actually when God used someone's boldness in my life to completely change the entire course of my life, the entire direction of my life. At the time I was uh, pre-med, I was going into medicine at Calvin College and I was doing really well. I was going into my junior year and uh, I decided to come home and visit my family and on the way home I decided to swing by David and Kristen's house. Some of you know this story. And uh, just as bold as bold could be, they said, why are you going into medicine? You know God has called you into ministry. I'm like, well, because there's no money in ministry and there's money in medicine. So I, naturally, I want to be able to pay for things. And Kristen Wassen, if you know Kristen wassen you know of the infamous Mama wassen talks. She very much like a Mama Wassen looked at me and said, well, when are you going to believe that God's going to provide for you if you obediently step into what he's called you to do and what you know he's called you to do? How did that go? (laughs) Well, I'm here preaching to you right now, and I'm so grateful that someone in my life was bold to tell me what I know God was leading me to do. And that boldness to tell me the hard truth led to real conviction in my heart that in turn led to a hard but right decision that in turn transformed the entire course of my life. Jesus' boldness is intentionally clear. Preaching boldly in the same temple that he ravaged the last time he was there. And this was just fuel for the Jews' fire against Jesus. They sought to arrest him, and the Pharisees even sent officers to arrest him. And what does it say? It says, no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. And I think this is really fascinating. The author of time itself, Jesus, controls everything, Jesus knew exactly the hour and when that hour was and that that was not the hour. That hour, that time, would come into the spring feast of Passover where Jesus would willingly lay down his life. And I think it's a helpful thing to remember that Jesus is the author of time, meaning that he knows everything, past, present, and future, and he never changes, and he is in control of everything. And that is a bold claim for Jesus to be interjecting into your life right now even as I am preaching to you. Maybe there's some things in your life that are happening in a time frame that you're not comfortable with, but guess what? God knows. And His timing is perfect. In fact, that's our second thing this morning. Jesus' timing is intentionally perfect. Let's pick up in verse 37. It says here, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified Like I said, uh, Pastor Cal last week was talking about the Feast of Booths and that Jesus showed up in the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths was one of three high feasts that the Jewish people were expected to, in fact, required to show up physically to Jerusalem for. It was a pilgrimage for the three high feasts. Jesus didn't just make sure that he showed up during one of the feasts, one of the major feasts, uh, but notice what it says here. It says, on the last day of the feast, and then it clarifies. It says, the great day. And I thought that was interesting, and and I didn't understand why the clarifying factor, the great day. What does it mean, the great day? And so I decided I wanted to look up into some historical context and and maybe some of the practices surrounding the Feast of Booths that the Jewish people would do. And one of the interesting things that I found in one of the commentaries is that during this feast, it was a seven-day feast and for seven days, uh, the priest, along with the people, would journey from the temple through the water gate down to the pool of Siloam. And their left hand would be a citrus fruit, signifying the uh, gratitude for the harvest that God gave him Gave them that year, and on the right hand would be a palm branch and some other reeds, uh, river-type reeds, uh, that signified the, uh, the plants that they used to make the booths that they lived in during the wandering in the wilderness where they saw God miraculously provide for them for 40 years. And so they would travel down this road, down to the Pool of Siloam, and the priest would scoop up water in a golden pitcher, and they would walk back up to the temple. But as they would do this, they would repeat the words of Isaiah 12, verse 3, which says this, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And what's interesting is they would do this for some days, and on the last day, the last day, it would be a little bit different, but it would be, it, they would do the same process, but it would be a little bit different. They would go down uh, to the, uh, the water, and this last day, they would call, it had its separate name because it was so special, it was called Hoshana Rabbah which means the great Hosanna. Isn't that interesting? Hosanna means save us. It's the great prayer of salvation moment. It's what they would be shouting at Jesus just months later at the triumphal entry. And on this day, this great day, they would go down doing the same thing. The priest would scoop up the water. They would walk back to the temple but differently The priest would then hold the water up real high and there would be this moment of expectation. There would be this moment of anticipation. It would almost be a tense moment because it would be silent. You could hear a pin drop before he would then pour the water out. This living water from the pool of Siloam, he would pour it out onto the altar. But there would be that expectant moment and it actually was a moment that was signifying judgment and repentance of the people before he would pour out the water. And it was in that moment That Jesus cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. What was Jesus thinking? He's interrupting this sacred practice and shouts out for the people to believe in him in this moment. Why that moment? Isn't that disrespectful? Isn't that disruptive? Isn't that a bit bold? Why not wait until after this whole ritual is done and then tell people this and I believe there's a reason for this, and I think it comes from Isaiah 12 of what they were repeating. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In fact, I want to see the context of that verse in Isaiah 12. I'm going to have it up on the screen. It says, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. Get this. And he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout, sing for joy, O habitant of Zion, for great, get this, in your midst, in your midst is the Holy One of Israel, Jesus wasn't just being awkward with bad timing here. He knew exactly what he was doing when he was interrupting this ritual right at that very moment, right at the great moment of the great day in the great Hoshana prayer, the great save us Lord prayer. Jesus is interjecting himself and saying, I am the living water. It's me that you're looking for. I'm the one that you are praying about. I am the salvation that you are longing for and praying for. In fact, the next time that the people are going to say Hosanna in the context of Jesus will be when he enters in on the triumphal entry. But notice this. It's about to go from awkward to intense because here's a third thing. Jesus' message is intentionally divisive. It's intentionally divisive. He not only interrupts the priest during this ritual, he's overturning the ritual by saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me because if anyone believes in me, out of him Out of him will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is cleansing the temple again, not in a physical sense, but now in a spiritual sense. He's basically saying, you do these things, you do these rituals to appeal to God for salvation, and yet you're missing the whole point of it all. I'm standing right here in your midst, and I am the source of living water. You know, it's interesting, one of the cool things about going to Israel is you learn so much about uh, the land of Israel. And the land of Israel is a desert. And in Israel, we learned a lot this last time about the importance of water. Obviously, water would be important in a desert land. But specifically in Israel, water was where you uh, would—that was the reason why any archaeological place that we visited— was placed there in ancient times because they didn't have the type of technology we have to import water or do anything like that. They, their cities were specifically placed there because of some water source that they found. Water in Israel means life. If there's water, then there's life. Um, water also meant purification for the Jewish people and everywhere we would go, we would see these things called mikvahs, And these mikvahs, you'll see a picture of one here. This is from Magdala, which is a a first century mikvah. This is exactly what it would have looked like in Jesus' time. And these mikvahs were these uh, ritual baths that on a daily basis, the Jewish people would have to purify themselves, dipping completely underneath in this water uh, before the Lord as their ritual for purification. And even to this day, the Orthodox Jews still do this. And the important thing about these mikvah baths is that they couldn't be stagnant water. They had to be water that had its source, as they would say, from the Lord, living water. So many of these ritual baths would have these mini aqueduct systems, and it would be taking rainwater that it was collected and, pour and flowing it into these baths, or from a deep natural spring um, that ha- where its source was. And this water was from the Lord. It was considered living, but also pure water because it was from the Lord. In fact, the Pool of Siloam, where this ritual would have happened on the Feast of Booths, was also a ritual bath because it had its source from living water. When Hezekiah, um, when he was under siege from Sennacherib, actually dug a tunnel from both sides, from the pool and from the Gion Springs, redirecting the Gion Springs to the pool of Siloam so that when they were under siege by Sennacherib, they actually had a source of water to keep them alive. And Sennacherib eventually gave up and went away. And the reason why I tell you this is because Jesus' message was very divisive when he said, if you thirst, come to me for living water. He's saying, you think you're purifying yourself with this water from the pool of Siloam or any ritual bath for that matter, but the problem is you're still dirty. You're still impure. But come to me, Jesus says, believe in me and you will have living water, get this, pouring from inside you, from you purity from the inside out. The source of your purity will be inside you. What does this mean? Well, it tells us what it means in verse 39. It says, now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now think of that for just a moment. One of the greatest truths of the gospel uh, when Jesus died and paid the penalty for our sin is that when we believe this by faith, forgiveness is extended to us. Our sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he sealed our eternity because sin and death were defeated. But get this, it could have just ended there but it didn't but god's grace went far beyond what we could ever ask for or imagine when when we believe in jesus he gives us the same power that rose him from the dead he gives us his spirit to be inside of us galatians says that our flesh has been crucified with christ so it's no longer i who live but christ who lives what in us The spirit of God himself, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, alive in us. It's this reason why when final judgment happens on that day when we die or Christ returns, when God looks at us, he doesn't see us, but he sees Christ in us, in our place, pure, holy, acceptable before the Lord. That's what it means to ha- when we say we have a relationship with Christ. It's that he's close, he's active, we relate to him because he is changing us. He's purified us from the inside out. And so why is this so important that we would be purified by Christ through his spirit? It's because he knows that there is nothing that we could do, nothing that we could do in our own power or any ritual that would be able to purify ourselves, and yet How often do we see our world and many religions in our world trying to do exactly that and achieve their own purity? Do you get it? Jesus' message is intentionally putting a dividing line between ritual and relationship. And that message today is just as divisive and those rituals of trying to purify ourselves, they are just as prevalent in our world You know, one of the saddest places that we visited in Israel is actually the traditional and more likely the historical place where um, Jesus both was killed, um, his body was prepared, and his body was buried in a tomb where he rose from the dead. It's this giant church called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in the old city of Jerusalem you're like, Chris, why is that the saddest place? Um, Isn't that the most amazing place? Uh, Well, it would be, except for the fact that humanity has exchanged the gospel message that would have happened there for idolatry of the physical things that were associated with Jesus's death. When you walk into this building, you walk into this church, the first thing you see is the picture on the left here. You see these people bowing down to this rock surface where they believe that that was where they they prepared Jesus' body for burial and they're rubbing their face on it. I saw this lady one time taking her scarf and rubbing it all over this rock and then rubbing it all over her face and everything. In case there's any question about how COVID spread in Israel, (laughs) it was right here. And then you would go up into uh, the staircase that would go upstairs to this rock surface that they've now since built around, but they had this opening. And this rock surface was a place called Golgotha. Uh, it was a quarry, and there was an opening in that quarry where um, they believed that that was the place where Jesus' cross would have been placed into the rock. And so what you're seeing is these mass loads of people. I couldn't even get close to it. There were so many people in there getting, taking their time to wait in line to bend down and kiss the spot where the cross was placed placed into the rock. And then you would go into the other side of the church, which is this picture on the right here, which is this giant shrine that is uncovering the tomb of Jesus that he was buried in and then rose from the dead. Right there, perhaps, and yet there was a two and a half hour or more line to get in to look in. People kissing the ground and, and weeping at the sight and different things like that. And, and, and I just think if Jesus were to show up today at the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, he would probably say the same thing that he said in the temple. He said, what are you doing? Why are you rubbing your face all over uh, this rock? Jesus is making it abundantly clear that salvation is not a ritual. It is a relationship. He says, come to me, believe in me, and you will have the source of purity inside of you. This is a divisive message, and we can see that it was a divisive message because of the response of the people and the Pharisees. Let's pick up here in verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied to Nicodemus, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. The same message had polarizing effect on this crowd. Some were like, this is a prophet. This is clearly a prophet. This must be the Christ. And some were threatened by it. In fact, the Pharisees were very much threatened by it. And they wanted Jesus to be killed. They sent officers to arrest him. And the officers were like, what do, what do I arrest him for? No one has ever talked like this man before. And uh, wh- why exactly were the Pharisees so threatened by Jesus? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because if what Jesus just said is true, they don't have any power anymore. See, because the Pharisees pride themselves in the fact that they were the gatekeepers of the law to the Jewish community. If you wanted to know what the law was, you had to go through a Pharisee to understand what the law was. And they used that to lord over the people in these rituals that they uh, came up with. They lorded over the people and looked down on the people. And anyway, I mean, can I just be pastoral for a moment? Permission to be pastoral in this room? Many people, Many people, perhaps some people in this room, have their hope in the ritual of Christianity and not the relationship with Jesus. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, I'm at church, I'm here, I'm doing what I need to do. Jesus is tr- dividing a very clear line between ritual and relationship. And sadly, there are many people who come week in and week out and still don't take Jesus up on his offer about having that living water pouring from their heart, having the purity from the inside out, receiving Jesus as Savior, but also as Lord. And he's calling you perhaps right now, if that's you, he's calling you right now intentionally. That's our last point here. Jesus' call is intentionally direct. He says, anyone who thirsts, does anyone thirst this morning? Jesus is calling directly to you. He's calling out to the Pharisees to repent of their hypocrisy and pride. He's calling out to the skeptic to see the signs. He's calling out to the desperate to see his invitation to life in living water. Jesus' boldness is intentionally clear. It is not a mistake that you're sitting right here, right now, listening to this message because his timing is intentionally perfect. His message is intentionally dividing our hearts right now to hear his call to you right now in this moment as direct as it is. He says, come to me. It doesn't matter where you're coming from. It doesn't matter what circumstance you're walking out of. It doesn't matter what valley you are walking through. He says, come to me and drink. Come to me and find satisfaction. Come to me and find forgiveness. Come to me and find rest. Come to me and find peace. Come to me and find life. Do you thirst this morning? Do you want to change? Is your way not working today? Are you hurting? Are you sick? Are you sick and tired of the status quo of your life and what has become? Are you hoping that maybe just coming to church would help you forget about everything else going on in your life and the other problems happening right now? Maybe you're drowning in sorrow and grief. Are you gripped by fear, anxiety, and depression? Are you enslaved by the passions of the flesh that constantly make you feel guilty and dirty and impure? Why are you here today? Do you thirst for the living water, for the purity and the hope that only comes through Jesus Christ? Because Jesus is intentionally coming after your heart right now. You might even be feeling it Right now, I know I've been there sitting in the congregation and my heart pounding out of my chest because of what the pastor's saying. Leaves us with a big question. Is your heart a desert or a river this morning? When we think about the vast expense that Jesus went through to be able to say these statements and to be able to make these claims, we cannot move quickly past the reality that in order for living water to flow from our hearts, blood had to flow from his hands, feet, and side. The reality of our hearts, the scripture says, is that all of our hearts started as a desert because of our sin. We were hopeless apart from an act of God who sent Jesus through his mercy and grace to die the death that we deserve because of our sin and then to raise again from the dead, which is what we celebrate going into this week, giving us life, giving us forgiveness, giving us peace, giving us hope, giving us a reason to live. And he's calling you right now to follow him, if you have not made that step, he's calling to you right now to believe in him. He's calling you right now to receive him as Lord. And I don't know where you're at right now, but often our hearts can get so distracted, can't it? And maybe we've been a believer for years, but we've allowed something in our life or a situation or ongoing diagnosis or something like that to distract us from our ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's a time to repent of that distraction. It's a time to draw near to the Lord and maybe even make a drastic step in our life to finally surrender our heart to him. He's calling He's calling and maybe you're tired. Maybe you're weary. Maybe you are in need, desperate need of a revival in your heart. You believe in Jesus, but you need revival. You believe in Jesus, but your relationship has become stagnant. You need that living water flowing through and out of you again. Can we be honest with ourselves this morning and where we're at and where our heart is at this morning because Jesus is calling. I want to change the ritual of what our, our normal service order is here a little bit. And would you bow your heads with me? If you sense that Jesus is calling you this morning, there's a conviction in your heart, something that is happening that Jesus is stirring up in your heart right now, even as I am talking, would you be so bold to put a stake in the ground this morning And maybe that is a declaration to say that I am following Jesus for the first time. Maybe it's a declaration to say that I'm going to pursue Jesus in a new way today because my heart has become a desert, but I I need that desert to be filled with living water if you know that God is tugging on your heart right now saying, come to me and drink and out of your heart will flow rivers of living water, if that's you, you know exactly what God is convicting you of, you know exactly what area of your life God is calling you to in right now, would you be so bold to answer that call and raise your hand? I would like the opportunity to pray over you. Now, there's nothing magical about raising your hand in a situation like this, but often an outward response to an inward conviction, an inward call toward Jesus, it serves as a memorial stone in our lives to remember and to look back to, to say, if God worked in my life back then, if he worked in my heart right then, he is faithful to continue to work and to continue that all the way to completion. If he was faithful, then he will be faithful as well in the future. After I pray, I'm going to have the worship team sing over us as we reflect on what Christ has done, even as we go into Holy Week this week and reflect on who Christ is and what he did for us. He didn't deserve that, and we don't deserve what he gave us. But if you have a conviction in your heart right now and you know that you need to do some work with the Lord, would you raise your hand right now? And I want to pray over you. Father, God... For those in this room who have a conviction in their heart that they need you more, God, we know that if we ask, we shall receive. If we draw near to you, your promise is true that you will draw near to us. And God, we need you. We need that living water pouring out from our hearts. We need that purity that only you can provide because God, when we stand before you someday, We can't stand before you someday and try to give you a list of all of the good things that we did to try to save ourselves. But God, we can only stand before you someday because of what you did for us, dying the death that we deserve. And I just pray, God, that that truth would well up in our hearts and those raising their hand this morning, that this would be a stake in the ground, this would be a memorial stone, an Ebenezer of their life that they would look back on and say, God, you are faithful and just and true and you are a loving and gracious God not only to save me, but to give me living water, to give me life, and to give me hope in such a dark world. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's spend this time in reflection.